0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest standing and lasting air conditioning company on the Paradise Coast. You can find out more by visiting the uh, website johnsonsairconditioning.com, also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He is a research fellow with the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Byron Donalds, our state representative and candidate for U.S. Congress, endorsed by the Club for Growth. Very good uh, move for Byron. We'll also visit with Sharon Kenney, the author of Where Should We Eat? And she writes commentary on travel, dining, and entertainment. And we'll visit with Phil Kirpin. Phil is the president of American Commitment. We'll be talking about un- unemployment compensation policy and how it impacts our economy. It is July the 3rd and on this day in 1775, George Washington rode out in front of the American troops gathered in Cambridge, common in Massachusetts, and drew his sword, formally taking command of the Continental Army. A prominent Virginian planner and veteran of the French and Indian War had been appointed commander-in-chief by the Continental Congress two weeks before. In agreeing to serve the American colonies in their war for independence, he declined to accept payment for his services beyond reimbursement of future expenses. George Washington was born in 1732 in a farm family in uh Westmoreland County, Virginia, his first direct military experience came as a lieutenant colonel in the Virginia Colonial Militia in 1754 when he led a small expedition against the French in Ohio in the River Valley on behalf of the governor of Virginia, beginning a fight that resulted in a disastrous defeat for first Washington and then British General Edward Braddock. Uh, This launched the Seven Years' War, but Washington resigned from his military post and returned to a planter's life in Virginia, later taking a seat in Virginia House of Burgesses. During the next two decades, Washington openly opposed escalating British taxation and repression of the American colonies. In 1774, he represented Virginia at the Continental Congress. After the American Revolution erupted in 1775, he was nominated to be Commander-in-Chief of the new established Continental Army. Some of the Continental Congress opposed his appointment, thinking other candidates were better equipped for the post, but he was ultimately chosen because, as a Virginian, his leadership helped bind the South and the Southern colonies more closely to the rebellion in New England. Despite his inexperienced and poorly equipped army of civilian soldiers, General Washington led an effective war of harassment and against uh, British forces in America while encouraging the intervention of the French into the conflict on behalf of the colonists. On October 19, 1781, with the surrender of British General Charles Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown, Virginia, Washington defeated one of the most powerful nations on earth. After the war, the victorious general retired to his estate in Mount Vernon, but in 1787 he heeded his nation's call and agreed to preside over the Continental Convention in Philadelphia. The drafters created the office of president with him in mind, and in February 1789, Washington was unanimously elected as the first president of the United States. As president, Washington sought to unite the nation and protect the interests of the new republic at home and abroad. Of his presidency, he said, I walk on untrod, untrodden ground. There is scarcely any part of my conduct which may not hereafter be drawn in precedent. What a wise man! He successfully implemented executive authority, making good use of brilliant politicians such as Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson in his cabinet. And quieted fears of presidential tyranny. In 1792, he was unanimously re-elected, but four years later, refused a third term, and he died in 1799. We can be so grateful for his presence and his leadership during this very fragile time of our of our history. While well, U.S. unemployment rate dropped to 11.1 percent in June, as businesses shuttered by the coronavirus pandemic earlier this year began to rehire millions of idled workers. The Labor Department said in its report, released on Thursday because of the 4th of July holiday, that employers added 4.8 million jobs in June, the biggest increase on record. Of course, on the past month, every state has started to navigate reopening their economies. But the unemployment level, which is still at the highest level in decades, is expected to remain elevated as social distancing guidelines remain in place. The government's non-farm payroll data, which covers both private and public sector jobs and workers, showed the economy gaining 2.5 million jobs in May, far more than expected and indicating an accelerated pace of recovery. This is really bad news for Democrats who, whose political hopes are predicated on a dismal economic recovery and, of course, Joe Biden. The financial markets were positive yesterday, but sold off their highs by the end of trading. Markets are closed today, of course, in observance of Independence Day. Well, let's take a look at COVID-19 here in the Paradise Coast. 163 new cases and one additional death in Cuyahoga County on Thursday. The county's death toll stands at 82, according to the state. COVID-19 cases in Cuyahoga have increased to 4,539 That's out of 35,138 tests, 349 people in Cuyahoga County have been hospitalized. Of course, the number of new cases is not what we're supposed to be watching here. Uh, We're supposed to be watching the the curve level on hospitalizations. Do you remember that? But everybody's talking about new cases now. Well, uh, right now... Uh, here's a headline in the Naples Daily News ICUs full at 3 Lee Kayak Hospitals as coronavirus cases continue to rise all right that uh, that's kind of the f- fanning the fear uh, fanning the flames of fear about uh, what's happening at ICUs. Well, less than 50% of this is in the, in the body of the, of the column, less than 50% of the patients in ICU are COVID-19 positive and patients will be transferred to lower acuity beds in different units of the hospital as their condition improves. The patient census is evaluated each day and we activate our established overflow units when needed. In other words, when you read between the line lines, the hospitals, of course, want their ICUs units full. That's the most profitable for them. And let's face it, they have to continue to uh, navigate and make money during this coronavirus period. But when you really peel the onion, uh, right now patients, I think, are recovering sooner and in less need of ICUs. And the uh, actual count, while ICUs may be increasing their, their count, uh, it's not necessarily because of COVID-19 patients. Although, you know, one here, the here Lee Health and uh, NCH Healthcare System, which has released on data on a daily basis for months, have shown steady increases in the numbers of patients who have been isolated for the virus. But it doesn't, <laughs> if you have a steady increase, what's the baseline here and how many? So we don't get a lot of good information, but we're certainly fanning the flames of fear. Vice President Pence uh, came to Tampa yesterday to meet with Governor Ron DeSantis Even at Florida set another grim daily record, hear hear this uh, this language, grim daily record by adding 10,109 coronavirus cases. Pence, though, insisted that Florida and other southern and western states witnessing a sunbelt resurgence are well positioned to handle the spike. No one wants to see these numbers where they are or no one wants to see them go up, Pence said, flanked by DeSantis at the University of South Florida. But we really do believe that because we're in such a better place today, the people of Florida can rest easy, Pence said, saying that testing, medical supplies, and hospital availability were better than in early days of the coronavirus pandemic. We really believe, and I know your governor does, too, and I can assure you that your president does, that we won't have to to choose between good health and a strong economy, said. The American people know that America works when America is working. So true. So reassurance. And, of course, um, Democrats are saying, hey, no, no, look, we're seeing this resurgence. The sky's falling. Well, Washington Beacon, Free Beacon, senior investigative reporter Alana Goodman told Tucker Carlson last night, great show, by the way, that the circumstances of the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's ex-girlfriend and alleged madam, were very bizarre She was arrested Thursday morning in a small town of Bradford, New Hampshire, where she had been residing in a multimillion-dollar estate, about 150 acres. The 58-year-old appeared virtually before a federal magistrate in nearby Concord Thursday afternoon and waived her right to a detention hearing, clearing the way for her transfer to New York. She was ordered to be held without bail on multiple sex abuse charges, including conspiracy to entice minors to engage in sexual acts. Goodman noted that because Maxwell holds citizenship in France, the country of her birth, she would likely not have been extradited from the European nation had she gone there. So it's very surprising that she was hiding out really under everybody's noses in the United States within driving distance of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Now apparently there was a lot of kiting of money and all kinds of things going on as she was trying to hide herself in plain sight there in Concord, New Hampshire. Tucker Carlson asked Goodman if any of Epstein's high-profile friends should be worried now that Maxwell's in custody. Well, you know, let's face it, Epstein is dead. She doesn't really have to worry about protecting him or anything else at this point, point. and so I think she might be willing to talk about what she knows if she could get a reduced sentence. Uh, well, will, Kat, will she be joining her father and her pal Jeffrey across the River Styx? It's certainly a question of in the mind of many Next to Epstein, she is the only person with direct knowledge of the sexual predilections of these who shared her millionaire associate's pathological craving for underage girls. England's Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton were known to be Epstein's private Caribbean island, the Pedophile Island, aboard his private jet, the Lolita Express. It shouldn't surprise us if oddsmakers in Las Vegas are currently calculating Maxwell's chances for remaining alive once a judge sets a real trial date. And so, the Ghislaine Maxwell death watch begins. I just uh, I hope she doesn't end up the way that Jeffrey did. I hope she has an opportunity to sing about what she knows. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite Luxury Lifestyles. The website is NaplesIllustrated.com Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is B's Diner, providing great service. Fabulous food and a rockin' good time, Lulabee's diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. no reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulubee's.com and stop by Lulubees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulubee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulubee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool, rockin' good time. Gulf Shore Playhouse, devoted to creating professional New York-style theater at its very best and at affordable prices, presents a fabulous new season of productions beginning in November with a world premiere of a one-man show written by and starring the talented associate artistic director of Gulf Shore Playhouse, Jeffrey Bender. Pin Up Girls opens in January, singing a cavalcade of hits inspired by real letters from our troops overseas. Inspired by what they find funny, romantic, heartbreaking, and sexy, the ladies put on a show that celebrate the guys and gals who fight to defend our country. Bang Bang opens in March, written by legendary actor of Monty Python fame, John Cleese. You'll surely be wiping away tears of laughter with this one. William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream opens in March. Meddling parents, impetuous young lovers, and cunning fairies collide in Shakespeare's enchanting classic, Another Revolution by Jacqueline Bircher opens in May. You won't want to miss this timely new work about finding hope in one another through the uncertainty of the world around us what a terrific season of productions tickets for this great new season are available now tickets start at only 38 dollars. tickets can be purchased by calling the box office at 866-811-4111 or visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org we'll see you at the show welcome back
0: to the bob harden show And now here's your host, Bob Hartman.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more and get season tickets by visiting the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Byron Donalds, our state representative and candidate for U.S. Congress. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow with the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me on, Bob.
1: Always a pleasure, William. And uh, tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: Well, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're committed to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government.
1: Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Independence Day and its meaning to a libertarian organization like you and uh, the Cato Institute. But before we do, last week we talked about uh, Michael Flynn's situation, and I was wondering if you could give us an update.
2: Briefly, um, only hours after we spoke last week, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a writ of mandamus. It was a two-to-one, it was a three-judge panel and a two-to-one vote, um, ordering Judge Sullivan to effectively dismiss the case against Mike, uh, Michael Flynn. And this is, uh, we've spoken about many times in this show, um, is a resounding victory for justice. Um, Flynn had been railroaded by the FBI um, during the late stage of the Obama administration. And the Justice Department actually sought to dismiss the charges. Um, there was no one to prosecute the case, and for whatever reason, Judge Sullivan had persisted um, and had actually appointed uh, counsel to to effectively make the case against Mister um... So this is a, this is a great thing. I'll notice as well. I'll, I'll, I'll put out there as well. Concomitant with the uh, with the mandamus order, evidence, new evidence was revealed regarding the Flynn case, and. It was. It's pretty stunning stuff. And if the shoe were on the other foot, this would have been as big as as big as Watergate. I mean, I I, I venture to guess.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that that is that at a January fourth Oval Office meeting. Yeah. Uh, evidently, there were notes. These were handwritten notes um, from Peter Strozik. and it, it it did identify. It says that Comey had mentioned that the. Uh, what they'd investigated, or that Flynn's conversations with the Russian ambassador had been quote unquote legit. Um it also meant that notes said that Obama, notwithstanding the FBI wanting to dismiss the charges against Flynn, that said, we've got to put the right people on the case, but that's a verbatim quote. And that it was Vice President Joe Biden's his idea, his initiative to perhaps employ the Logan Act against Flynn, which is um, what he ultimately got wrapped up in. Um, you know, uh, Biden in May had told George Stephanopoulos that he had no knowledge, no connection whatsoever to any of this. Um, this was explosive stuff. That yeah. I mean, you certainly didn't read about out in the front page of the New York Times. I do want to throw it out there just because I do think that if the shoe were on the other foot, this would just be a huge deal.
1: Well, John Durham's investigation is not over right now. Apparently, we're supposed to hear something, probably we'll hear, not in the form of a report, but indictment sometime at the end of summer. And uh, it's, uh, again, the wheels of justice grind slow, but they grind fine. And uh, I think we're going to see, see some, uh, I guess, uh, some justice about what you've just cited here. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. So one one question though, uh, has Michael Flynn's, Flynn's case been dismissed, or where do we go from here?
2: Uh, not yet. Uh, but uh, shortly after the D.C. Circuit made its decision, Sullivan canceled all of the uh, of the deadlines he had set for um, having this counsel present his case against Michael Flynn. Um, in the meantime, he has not acted. But it, you know, there's not a lot of leeway for. Oh, actually, check that. He may pursue an appeal before the full D.C. Circuit, an on-bank appeal, or on their own initiative, any judge in the D.C. Circuit may uh, call for as much. Um, and I, I'm loath to prognosticate on the odds.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: so at this point, you know, he's in a bit of limbo, but uh, last week was nonetheless a resounding victory. It was a big deal.
1: So, you know, here we have what appears to me to be true uh, politicalization of... Uh, of weaponization, I guess, of the judicial process against Michael Flynn, and we're seeing this thing play out right now. We're in the midst of a cultural war. We're seeing violence on the streets and all kinds of things going on. kind of brings to you know the purpose right now. The Independence Day has great meaning for us uh, when the Declaration of Independence was declared on July 4th back in 1776. Uh, as a libertarian, as a, a man who uh, embraces the rule of law, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, in this time, um, I'll say this. Of, of course, I share the founders' commitment and the, the, the signers, the Declaration of Independence, their commitment to classical liberalism. I understand that's controversial these days. I mean, there's, you know, the people have different values. But I do think that as an American, one thing we can take from um, on this day, or I'm sorry, from tomorrow and what we're celebrating this weekend is the unity. Is the coming together and the sort of a, uh you know notwithstanding we do have hiccups in our history. We did slavery it was an abomination. Um, nevertheless, we're still the best country in the world by by miles. And I do hope that um, and this is speaking more so as an American than a libertarian. But that that perhaps you know in an ideal world this weekend would give. This country, the people of this country, pause just to reflect on how much we do like one another. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. <laughs> that even you know, if politics has become so all-encompassing, uh, we we forget that when we push that off the table, we, you know, there's not an American. The rare is the American that I've met that I don't get along with and have a ton in common with. So. That speaking as a libertarian, of course, the ideals set forth—the classical liberal ideals is something that resonate with me personally. I think should guide this country. I do realize that that's a matter of values, perhaps, and that different people have different values. But speaking as an American, in these divisive times, I would hope um, that you know this can serve as a reminder that this is a great place and that that the people here are our friends.
1: Yeah. No. Here. Here. And in fact. Uh, the American founders properly understood that rights come from God, not from government. In fact, we created God, There's, or created government. There's no right to murder one's child. There's no right to kidnap a human being and force them into involuntary slavery. There's no right to en- enact man-made laws that discriminate based on skin color. I mean, the fact of the matter is the Constitution is clear. We're individuals, and we are, we are, are free individuals, and we created governments uh, with enumerated and limited powers and uh, i think we can get back to that i think we're going to be in a good place
2: that would be a beautiful retelling of the classical liberal values that that i was speaking of that, that certainly um are an important part of my life and that i do think as you said so eloquently um that they really ought to be that is a safe touchstone for this country i mean that, that, that a lodestar um, that I do believe has, has led to wonderful results right. and will continue to do so. God bless
1: America. God bless America and happy Independence Day. William, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me
1: on, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Byron Donalds, our state representative and candidate for U.S. Congress. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs, and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website NADC.com. Kids.com. You'll be glad you did.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. I proudly serve on the board, and I hope you'll check it out, FGA.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Phil Kirpin. He is the president of American Commitment. Right now we have with us our state representative and candidate for U.S. Congress, Byron Donalds. Byron, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Good morning, Bob. How are
1: you? I'm great. Hey, I just want to mention to you, seeing your ads on TV, it's just great. It's a great message, and I think they're really, really impactful.
4: Well, I'll tell you, we, you know, we've been knocking doors for about a month, and the response at the ground when TV ads started going out started shifting pretty rapidly. Um, you know, we think we're in great shape as a campaign. Uh, people really do love the ads, so we're just grateful for that. Yeah. And um, you know, but it's more than just the ads. I think, you know, it's giving people an opportunity to really look at look at me as a candidate in our campaign and 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 really start to see that there's there's just one proven conservative in this race um who actually has a, a track record of not just saying the right things, but actually doing them. And um, you know, that's me. So, you know, election day's coming up pretty rapidly. Absentee ballots come out next week. And so voters are starting to see their ballots coming in their mailbox, and we just hope that they choose and select uh, uh, Byron Donalds to be uh, their nominee for United States Congress.
1: Yeah, well, let me just say that, uh, you know, Byron, in my view, you would be a great, you would be one of the people that would be selected by news outlets and media outlets to be a spokesperson about the issues of the day. I think you'd be do a fantastic job in, in Congress, and not only do you uh, support and understand the Constitution and the rule of law, but you uh, actually can articulate it in a way that I think is not only informative but inspiring. So again, my vote is for Byron Donalds, and when your ballot comes in the mail or when you go to the voting bo- bo- booth, I hope you'll vote vote for Byron and we'll check check out everything you need to but uh, I think an informed vote is a vote for uh, Byron Donalds Byron oh, by the way the website is byrondonalds.com byrondonalds.com uh, to find out more and make a contribution of course money being the mo- mother milk of politics Byron uh, you've been a champion of school choice of uh, being able for people to be able to choose where their kids go to school and the proper education that they need big uh decision by the Supreme
4: Court. Yeah, uh, this week the Supreme Court came out with a really a landmark decision. And what it did is it really uh slapped down what are called Blaine amendments uh or in, in many states around the country um, which frankly stopped uh public dollars from being able to flow to uh to religious schools. Um, and these Blaine Amendments, frankly, were born out of a hatred for the Catholic Church. That's what they were born from. And I think what a lot of people, if you don't really look at the history of of amendments and, and the Supreme Court decisions um, 100 years ago in this country and and, and sooner, a lot of the quote-unquote drive from the left, that the mantra they, they scream, separation between church and state, is not found in our Constitution. It's actually found in the hatred of the class, the Catholic Church mm-hmm. by, frankly, the Left a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And so it was, what was derived out of that were these Blaine Amendments that popped up in states around the country. And so this decision by the Supreme Court essentially struck that down. Uh, what it said is basically that if you are a state that's providing a scholarship program for parents to choose the education of their children, that parents should have the free ability to choose a religious education, just like they could choose a private school education or a, or, or a, or a, a, a non-denominational education, or whatever the case might be. Yeah. And so this is a massive step forward for school choice. Uh, what it really is saying is that public dollars, if they're, if that's what the parent is choosing to actually acquire, can be used in any environment for the education of their children. Um, and this is a bi- <clears throat> this is a massive step towards actually breaking down the bureaucracy uh, that really stops our children from getting a tr- uh, transformative education. It locks too many children into a basic education.
1: Mm-hmm. I will say this too. I mean, uh, this is really a step forward. I think the president said, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, school choice. Is the uh, civil rights uh, issue of the day something to that effect? In other words, it's now you, the quality of your education pretty much depends on your zip code unless you have school choice. So, this is why to me I think it's such a big move forward.
4: I agree with that, with that sentiment 100%. I mean, look, my, my mom, you know, growing up in the inner city. My mom made a decision to send me to private schools, and I mean, these weren't glitzy, these weren't glitzy, glamorous private schools. You know, they weren't the, the the things that people think about when they see on when they when they see private schools on TV. I mean, it was just a private environment for me to learn. It was a different environment. It was what I needed to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that in America today, since we truly believe that education should be funded what we should be funding is the opportunity for for parents to make the decision for themselves mm-hmm. um... and i think if you do that what you're actually going to see is the academic rigor is going to rise for all students no matter where they go because schools are like any other business quote-unquote they're going to want to compete for market share yeah and when you actually have real market principles in an economy it actually works out best for the people that that
1: economy is supposed to serve uh, so well said Bert byron again i just want to acknowledge you for being so supportive of all the improvements that we've seen in the last couple of years in education here in public education in Florida. So I want to acknowledge that. Uh, Before I let you go, I do want to get your comments on what's happening in New York, what's happening uh, in the violence in the cities, the statues, everything that's going on. Can you make uh, any thoughts there?
4: Yeah, there's two big thoughts. First is New York City Police Department um, has been defunded a billion dollars by the New York City Council. New York City Council is just They've done something very stupid, frankly, in my opinion. They've cut overtime hours for, for their law enforcement officers and cut other quote-unquote programs. Uh, what it's going to mean is less officers on the street, which is going to also mean uh, that you're going to have more crimes go unsolved and more people feeling less safe in New York City. And even when they were passing this vote, you know, the, the protesters at city, at city Hall in Manhattan, in downtown Manhattan, once it, the word came out that they cut a billion dollars of the out of the police budget, they weren't happy. They said, "That's not what we want. We want more." Mm-hmm. And so, this is what this is a, should be a lesson to the left that even the people that they that they prop up, they don't want them to just give a fig leaf. They want to literally destroy our police systems. They really they literally want to destroy our systems, and what they truly want. Is they want things like this Chaz Zone or Chop Zone in Seattle, where mayhem runs free, uh, where people were being shot and killed and were getting no assistance, no aid, where people were being raped, people were being robbed with no assistance at all. But the 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 radical left views this as what what true reform is, and for these leftist politicians and leftist leaders who are who are basically trying to. Uh, support this or encourage these kind of protests and movements, be careful what you wish for because it's actually going to lead to a disaster for our cities, which actually really hurts the poorest among us in our country, live in our urban corridors, and it hurts them the most.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, what you saw in Seattle, what you see in Minneapolis, they're kind of a petri dish of of Democrat politics. If you end up defunding the police and uh, and not enforcing the law, and we're seeing this. I mean, there's actually district attorneys who are elected, uh, and and uh, they've declared they're not going to, for example, if you if you steal something left, less than three hundred dollars from a store we're not going to convict you. We're not even going to pay attention to it. So this, this, the rule of law needs to be supported, and it doesn't matter how small the crime, it needs to be acknowledged some way by law enforcement. If, if you don't do that, nobody's going to pay, uh, pay attention to the law.
4: No, you're exactly right, and I think it's, it's high time that you know we, and this is going to be important, I think people in our inner cities, they've got to elect new leadership because what we've seen is a complete lack of leadership mm-hmm. in our cities, um, and that's actually been happening for a very long time, Bob. You know, conservatives have been talking about this for decades, about how these leaders are not doing the the things governmentally that are actually going to help our people be successful. And so it's really time for a, a, seed, a seed change in leadership in our urban communities. And I think voters, for the first time in a long time, are really going to start looking at this and saying, these these elected officials are not leaders. They're followers, and that's not going to protect our communities, and that's not going to get it done for our citizens.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you've—I'm uh, I'm quite certain you've seen Leo Terrell and his his turnabout. He was uh, certainly a Democrat, supported a civil rights attorney, the um, black attorney and I forgot what city I think in Illinois someplace, uh, Chicago perhaps. But the point is this that he's basically saying what this is just insanity and he's literally now supporting President Donald Trump uh, moving forward. I think that's such an important voice out there right now. And I think what I'm seeing, uh, it's kind of a, a canary in the coal mine, if you will, is that uh, I, th- I think pe- uh, people are getting fed up. They no longer want this kind of uh, leadership.
4: No, you're exactly right. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more of this as we move into this election cycle. Because let's be clear, I was actually having a conversation last night. Um, The the, the Joe Biden campaign isn't a campaign for Joe Biden about how special or great he is. Mm -mm. It's a campaign against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what this is. And so one of my basic rules of politics is that people don't vote against people, they vote for people. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have a lot of voters coming out to vote for Donald Trump as opposed to voting, you know, voting to remove Donald Trump, which means voting for Joe Biden. Yeah, um, and, and frankly, he's a terrible candidate anyway. Absolutely. So, you know, that's why I think you're going to see a lot of voters come out and support Donald Trump. You're going to see a lot of voters come out and support conservatives, because we have been unapologetic throughout this entire time about what is necessary Um, if we're going to actually help to not only just heal our urban communities and urban corridors, but actually put in the type of policies that will allow the young people in those areas and the people in those areas to be able to thrive and truly change their lives.
1: Byron Donalds, again, candidate for U.S. Congress, the candidate I support. I hope you'll go to ByronDonalds.com, find out more, and uh, make a contribution. Byron, I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Bob. You have a wonderful day.
1: You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Sharon Kenny. She is the author of Where Should We Eat? We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: For the best in food and drink, as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports & Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willy's, the Dog 2 Sports & Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Lynn and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25. Car wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. St. Matthew's House, such a great organization supporting the homeless and the needy and uh, people with addictions. I want to do a shout out to uh, Jerry Holacek, who is the owner of Lula Bee's Diner at the Green Tree Shopping Center. She Justin's place just had a graduation uh, Justin was her son actually and she uh, created uh, Justin's place uh, for recovery for people with addiction so i love uh, lullaby's diner great for breakfast and lunch at, at the uh, green tree shopping center i hope you'll uh, go dry and uh, in and try it out we have with us sharon kenney the author of uh, where should we eat she writes commentary on news travel uh, new on travel dining and entertainment uh, thank you so much for joining us sharon Hey, great to talk to you today, Bob. You as well, Sharon. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I'm going to go into the July 4th weekend, and things are so different this year. What's conspicuously absent, some of the restaurants that are closing.
3: Well, you know there are interesting, interesting times. May you live in interesting times. The yeah. ancient Chinese curse is certainly valid this we, this year, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. The uh, the tale of two cities, wasn't it? This, this is the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> so, so you know,
3: I mean, I think we should all. It's just another weekend. Yeah. It's a holiday weekend, but it's just another weekend, yeah. and uh, so I don't think we should get too upset about it. And and hopefully this will be all over next year, and this will be the only weekend like it in our history, and we'll look back and we'll see. Well, wasn't that an interesting year? Yes. Remember the year when there was no parade, when there was no fireworks? Yeah. Because that's what this year is going to be about. Yeah. It's going to be a quiet year in Naples. July 4th weekend is usually a crazy busy weekend in Naples as we have people from everywhere come. And not only do we not have our European visitors, um, we're actively, it seems, discouraging any kind of visitors from anywhere to come in uh because of the numbers of covid cases that are rising. So you're right, we're not having any fireworks this year. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, will be individual fireworks and I've seen a lot of places selling fireworks yep. for people to use individually, but there will no not be any fireworks at the city of Naples from the pier this year. Yeah. There will be no parade, 4th yeah. of July parade, which is always very busy. Naples beach Naples Beach will be back to those limited hours which um or early in the morning i think from 7 or 6 till 11 then it closes for midday and then opens again i believe from 5 to 7 or something like that yeah and uh no chairs no ta- no uh, umbrellas all that kind of stuff so discouraging people from being there also you have to have a beach sticker to park and then we have a lot of restaurants, as, uh, as you mentioned, that are going to be closed. Some surprising choices. So a couple of restaurants in, so, you know, the downtown Naples area, especially around Third Street, is always extremely busy um, because it's so close to the pier and people tend to park and stay all day. A mm-hmm. couple of, well, three restaurants that are the, you know, kind of mainstays for this area will be closed. So uh, the D'Amico and Sons, which is the uh, uh, restaurants that own, uh, the the partnership that owns Campiello and Continental right downtown, yeah. has made the decision to be closed from today. It's closed Friday to Sunday. It, it will reopen Monday, hopefully, please, <laughs> the Lord willing. Um, but they busy, busy restaurants, outdoor spaces, they have decided to close.
1: That is they such a, a strange surprise. decision. That, to me, is just uh, a... D- do you know anything about why the decision was made? Because I would think this would... Uh, just opening and going through this, I would think they'd like to have the business.
3: They've been very concerned um, about the virus and keeping, um, keeping their staff safe, keeping their patrons safe. They had made some decisions... Since they opened, they only opened Campiello originally, and they were only open for dinner. All of his restaurants, uh, Richard D'Amico's restaurants, were usually open for lunch and dinner. They never reopened for lunch. They only opened for dinner. And um, they did. When they reopened, they opened Campiello first. They saw how it went. Then they started opening Continental. And they were very busy. I was at Continental just last weekend, actually, and they were doing extremely well. But um, they were making... They had signs out front that said, if you are not from Collier County or Lee County, um, you know, we'd be delighted to
1: invi- enjoy your company. Yeah, they invite time. you to go across the street. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, were, were now they... that the numbers are high
3: here in Lee and County, Lee and Collier, I guess, they've decided to extend it to, ne- to here.
1: All right, were, they, were they checking driver's licenses? <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure how they did that or how um, legal that was. But anyway, um, the other surprise, though, that has closed, and it closed actually this week, and it will reopen next week, I believe, is Ridgeway. Hmm. Um, and all of the Ridgeway properties have closed. They had someone test positive for COVID um, in their Bayside restaurant up at Venetian Village, and then they made the decision to just close all of their restaurants. And that's a surprise to me because they have been open throughout this entire thing, for takeout, yeah. and then they reopened their restaurants. And uh, so for them to have closed, it may be simply a decision in, in caution, but also just to take a break.
1: Yeah, you know, I just, uh, yeah, I get worried about fanning the flames of fear here in Collier right. County and across the nation because, quite frankly, I mean, we continue to move the goalposts. At first, when we started this whole business, it was flattening the curve, which had to do with hospitalization and ability to uh, be able to take keep. Care of people in the hospital. Okay, so that's all kind of behind us. Now we're seeing an increase in the number of cases, but are they really deadly? Or you know, what I what I believe is that about seventy percent of the population is inevitably going to get the virus. Uh, about one in four hundred will end up dying as a result. Uh, who get the virus? About 025 percent, and uh, those we mainly let's say fifty percent the elderly and people who have compromised immune systems. So. I, I just wonder about, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of servers who have never been tested that are, quite frankly, have had, had the virus or perhaps have it now. But I think most people are just asymptomatic or don't get very sick.
3: Right. And it's, it's not just servers. It's, you know, the kitchen staff. It's, um, uh, you know, all the front of the house that, we have to, that people are concerned about. Yeah. But it's not across the board. We then have some openings. So we have um, the bevy. Has uh, just reopened. Great! It's a wonderful, great, great new restaurant uh-huh. around the corner from Continental and Camp Yellow, and um, a wonderful indoor-outdoor space. I don't know if you've been, Bob, but they just opened last week. I've never uh, been to the been Bevy closed since all of this closed back in March. Um, but they have a new owner, a new menu and it looks fabulous, and they've been posting a lot of social media pictures showing, you know, everybody's being careful and socially distant, but they're still very popular. Yeah, so, not everybody... It, it, it's interesting to see how people are interpreting things differently. Also, um, Grappino, I know there was some concern about Grappino being closed for a day. Grappino has reopened, so all of the... Um, Restaurants that are owned by Ingrid and Fabrizio Aielli are back open. Blue Provence has always been open. Yep. So, you know, it's hard to say what makes the differences in, in who has opened and who has closed.
1: That's exactly right. In fact, I want to do a little shout out to Blue Provence that, again, got their sixth. Uh, uh, top 100 restaurants or or wine purveyors in the world from Wine Spectator. Just a big, big deal. We were there last night and just just a a great place to dine. Again, Sharon Kenney, the author of Where Should We Eat? I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Great to talk to you. Happy July 4th.
1: You as well. Thank you so much, Sharon. Coming up, we're going to visit with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Bob
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board, and I hope you'll check out thefga.org. We have with us Phil Kirpin. Phil is the president of American Commitment. Phil, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Hey, Bob. Great to be with you.
1: Thank you, Phil. Tell us about American Commitment.
5: We're a national free market advocacy group. Um, We work really on all of the fiscal economic and regulatory issues from the perspective of limited government and what we try to do is sort of focus on the issues that are on the margin where a little bit more citizen engagement education and involvement can make a difference in the outcome and so we try to get people the facts and the information they need to engage in these fights uh, about the size scope and intrusiveness of government and help them write letters to Congress or to regulatory comment dockets or into the White House and uh, Right to win some of these fights that that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise won. Yeah. So that's the uh mission and everything's on American Commitment org.
1: American Well I got an action alert from you uh about uh, Pelosi wanting no more unemployment, that uh, or she wanting more unemployment that pays more than work. In fact, I'm surprised that we're seeing employment numbers as big as they are, given the fact that, that we've got people who right now are trying to decide, should I go to work because I'm making more if I, now being unemployed than if I go to work? Maybe you could tell us about it.
5: Yeah, this was put in uh, three months ago now, uh, which, <laughs> those three months, Seem like an eternity of sorts, uh, yeah. but uh, Congress in the CARES Act passed a federal unemployment bonus supplement of $600 per week on top of regular state unemployment benefits. And uh, what what that has done is that has put more than half of the American workforce in a position where, if they are unemployed, they will make more than they made when they were working. And you know the, the sort of the lower your wages were, the more profound this effect is, because normally unemployment is calculated as a percentage of the wages you were earning before with a cap in, in normal state unemployment programs. And so I think in Florida it's capped at about $300 a week. Um, if the federal government adds $600 on top of that, well, hmm. they're, they're tripling the benefit, but the $600 has no relationship. To how much you were making when you were working, and so, for instance, if somebody was working for forty hours a week at fifteen dollars an hour, they were making six hundred dollars a week to work. Well, the federal bonus alone is worth six hundred dollars, and you're getting your state benefit, so now you're getting nine hundred dollars not to work yeah. uh, when you're only getting six hundred dollars to work. So, losing your job in in that circumstance, if you were making six hundred dollars a week before, becomes a fifty percent raise for not working. And then, if your boss calls you and says, Hey, we're finally ready to reopen. I need you on Monday. And you say, "You know, I'd love to come back, but the thing is, I'm making a lot more money now on unemployment. Can you match what I'm making now and then I'd be happy to come back because otherwise, you know, I really need the money." And then the employers in this horrendous situation because obviously they can't afford to pay that much. Right. Uh they're just trying to get back up off the ground. Uh, you know, right. they've just been hammered by, you know, not being able to operate and uh, you know, they could, I guess, threaten, "Hey, if you don't come back to work, I'm going to call the unemployment office and say I made a bona fide offer to you and try to cut off your benefit." Uh, but if you do that, and the person comes back to work, are they going to be any good as an employee? Or are they going to hate you? Yeah. And so most yeah. employers are not going to do that, and it puts them in this terrible, terrible situation.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Nancy Pelosi. Right? I mean, that was, that was a surprise that showed up in this strange last time, and I guess they're considering another. Where well, is the, the, the House
5: has passed a six-month extension. So if the Senate goes along with that, they're going to run this all the way to the end of January.
1: Yeah, Uh, it's not just unbelievable. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to go to AmericanCommitment.org. You can, again, make a statement right there online. It's very easy to do about this, uh, this whole notion. Be supportive of the fact that people should not be making more. When they're not working, then they are when they're working, and uh, our voices really do make a difference. I want to check in with you. You've been a real advocate for getting opening schools and uh, keeping coronavirus in, in perspective. Any comments?
5: Well, we've got to get the schools open. Uh, the three months that children lost uh, were... I think a huge, huge setback for them educationally, and more importantly, for social and emotional development. And I know it's been really tough on my kids, and uh, and I can only imagine uh, how much tougher it is uh, for for people maybe who are were, were less advantaged to try to cope with it. And uh, the science is increasing. Uh, children are are overwhelmingly spared uh, by this disease. That's the big difference between COVID and flu. Flu has a classic U-shaped age distribution. Uh, the coronavirus really has a j shape uh, there's almost no disease burden at all among the young it really starts uh, above age 45 a little bit and then sort of accelerates the above age 70 is where almost all of the mm-hmm. uh serious disease and death is and so the idea that we're avoiding having children in schools for something that for them is much much less dangerous than the flu is Perverse. It's very bizarre, mm-hmm. uh, and yet the CDC has these guidelines that because they want six feet of separation, which is you know basically impossible given the layout of school classrooms, the number of students, and so forth, if schools try to follow the CDC guidelines, what they're finding is they have to go to a part-time schedule. Now, if you think children spread the disease, and there's a lot of evidence that they very rarely do because they tend not to get it, and then even when they get it, they tend to be less efficient spreaders than adults. So I'm not so worried about this myself, but if you are worried about this, if you disagree with my read on that science and think children will spread it, these part-time schedules are literally the worst possible thing you could do because if children are only in school with their same class part of the time, Mm -hmm. they're going to be in some other type of child care arrangement on the other days, which means they're going to be mixing with all different groups of children. You're going to have much, much more population mixing then you would have if you kept standard-sized classes and so i think uh... there's a lot of irrationality right now on the school issue i was surprised and pleased to see very reasonable recommendations from the american academy of pediatrics mm. uh... which is the main uh, the The main professional society for pediatricians in this country that represents sixty seven thousand pediatricians they 're an extremely risk averse group normally they're i mean they're they seem to increase the age they want kids in car seats every other year i think it 's up to like you know like until you can drive almost now they want you in a car seat so i mean they 're notoriously uh risk averse and yet they put out recommendations basically saying. You know, do not interpret the CDC guidelines so rigidly that you end up not having all the kids in full time school because that's going to be much much worse for everyone from a health standpoint and a development standpoint. There are going to be psychological harms. You know, they they basically said, look, you know, if you can't do six feet of separation, three feet is you know almost as good uh, in terms of preventing the spread of this. And you know, it, it's so much more important that the kids be in school. And so I was pretty impressed that the AAP did, did that. They also ran through a lot of the literature from around the world showing that children are at extremely low risk and are unlikely to uh, be spreaders of the disease as well. And so I'm hoping that that AAP recommendation will uh, get a lot of school systems and and administrators to reconsider uh, too rigidly following the CDC. And I'm also hoping... We'll see a revision from the CDC uh, specifically clarifying that while they would like to see six feet of separation, it's more important to have all the kids in school full-time than it is to do that. If you can only do, you know, three feet, uh, then... then do that rather than have the kids sit at home. So I'm hoping we can get clarification from the CDC on that point because I really think these part-time schedules are going to be a disaster from any way you look at it.
1: Absolutely, and I, I quite frankly, I don't think there's any science that supports six feet versus three feet.
5: Yeah, there never was. There never <laughs> was. I mean, three feet have been the standard for decades and decades and decades. It's yeah. still the standard in most countries. One meter is the World Health Organization standard. The United Kingdom was at two meters, and they admitted. We doubled it to two meters just because we didn't know if British people would know what one meter was, so we thought it would be better to say two. But they recently switched back to one because business and school layouts don't work at two meters. And, you know, it, it wasn't that there was some great study that said actually there's a huge reduction in transmission if you go from three feet to six. It was really just one of these things where... You know, we had all the research. We've always said three feet, but the CDC thought, you know, this the new disease is coming. It looks really bad. Uh-huh. Let's give a six-six feet advice because if three is good, six is better. And, you know. I'm not saying there isn't a certain logic to that, but it's not like this was based on rigorous science. And, yeah, uh, we, I think, we you know,
1: Phil, we just need to be careful. Just uh, realize that we could be carrying a disease or could actually get infected. But otherwise, you know, uh, even I'm not even in favor of wearing masks. I don't think they do much. But the, po- the point being is take care. Other than that.
5: Prolonged close contact. It's prolonged close contact. And, yeah. you know, that's. If you use good judgment and you're cautious, that doesn't have to mean any fixed number of feet, but it means not leaning in close to talk to someone, and especially, uh, you know, just. You, using being aware is the main thing.
1: Absolutely. Again, I want to encourage you to go to American Commitment. This, uh, you'll find AmericanCommitment.org. You'll find this and other issues there that you can support. Uh, and I uh, just hope that you'll, uh, again, visit the website AmericanCommitment.org. Phil, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: My pleasure, and have a great uh, Fourth
1: of July. You as well. Thank you, Phil. Really well-informed guy. Just appreciate his message. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show, and I guess uh, I'm just hopeful that each of us will think about Uh, The Declaration of Independence, maybe read it, understand uh, that uh, the great move, the great thing that happened 245 years ago when our founders uh, signed the Declaration of Independence, Uh, uh, so few people really made such a big change for all of us and now created the Constitution, which, of course, is all about the rule of law. Uh, I hope you'll uh, have a great 4th of July weekend with that in mind. Join us Monday. We'll visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll visit with uh, Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of several books, his latest, Shake the Money Tree. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>